Assalamu alaikum and welcome to a Turkish edition of Islamophonic, going to the meeting point of East and West in a country that claims to be 99% Muslim and 100% secular. In this program, we learn about Turkey's fastest growing Islamic movement, the Gulen movement, and of course, we talk about headscarves. <laughs> So how did I end up in Istanbul? Well, when someone offers to pay for your bed and board, it's hard to say no. My host, the Dialogue Society, is a charity run by second-generation Turks. They live in Britain, cultivating social cohesion and promoting interfaith relations. What they've been doing is flying out journalists and academics to Istanbul to introduce them to the Gulen movement, a loose coalition of public institutions and media organizations inspired by the charismatic preacher Fethullah Gulen. If you haven't heard of him before, you will now because he's just been named as Prospect Magazine's most influential thinker on the planet. Sizin gelecekte iyi günleri idrak ettiğiniz zaman geriye dönüp yüzüne bakacağınız günler olacaktır. Fethullah Gülen is an Islamic scholar with tens of millions of followers in Turkey, but he's lived in exile in the US since 2000. He ran into trouble with Turkish authorities who accused him of trying to set up an Islamic dictatorship under the guise of a moderate and benign image. He and his supporters preach Islam through subtle means, talking about shared values rather than focusing on the doctrine of Islam. Here's what his website has to say about morals. Man. Man is a being endowed with noble sentiments, capable of acquiring virtue and drawn to eternity. Even in an apparently most wretched person, there is some intimation of eternity, some love of beauty and impulses to virtue. If man can develop these most basic elements of his being inherent in him, he can rise to the highest ranks of humanity and attain to eternity. Some pearls of wisdom from Fethullah Gülen. Özcan Keller from the Dialogue Society is a product of a Gülen school. He was born and raised in London, but when he was a teenager, he moved to Turkey. He's now a successful lawyer and a big Gülenista. Gülen is not a modernist. Gülen is not a reformist. Uh, Gülen is a traditionalist in the sense that he bases what he says within the classical teachings of Islam. And he interprets and, and gives us these interpretations through the classical uh, Islamic methodologies. That means that he has the credibility that he has. So he, he's, he's a person who is uh, not only an alim, an Islamic scholar, also an, an intellectual, widely read, and, and is aware of the culture of our 21st century, but is also a practitioner in the sense that he's not just an academic who goes to the library and produces these books. He's somebody who actually believes in them. And when you have those three elements, practitioner, Islamic scholar, and intellectual, that gives you the kind of transformative edge that I've been talking about. And that means that you have the credibility, you have the following. Despite Fatullah Gulen's absence from the country, his work lives on, in hospitals, newspapers, TV programs, universities, and schools. Now, the schools, and there are more than 300 of them in Turkey, are the best performing with some of the brightest pupils in the country. I went to the Anafen school in Umraniye, an Istanbul suburb. Like all Gulen schools, it's fee-paying with an entrance test and it emphasises its excellent exam results and extracurricular activities. We have club activities in the school, almost 20 club activities, like some sport activities, music activities. Also Saturday also we have other activities. So you give them education during the week and then 
after school and at the weekend. So they spend a lot of time in school. <laughs> there are some exams. They are staying maybe to eight o'clock in the evening time. What do you want to do when you grow up? Maths engineer. What do you mean, maths engineer? Maths engineer. Anybody else? Does anybody want to be a doctor or? Doctor. Doctor. Who wants to be a doctor? Lots of doctors. Why are the Gulen schools different to other schools? For example, one month ago uh, we had been exam. My class, first student in Turkey, yes. in our class. Oh, so the students in your class came first? Yes. It's a so. very good success mm -hmm. for me and for school. So the, the students at Gulen schools get good ga exam results. What are the other differences? What and makes Gulen schools special? Discipline is too much. Yes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> There's too much discipline. Okay, so they seem to work hard and they take discipline very seriously. But where does the religion come in? This is a Gulen school after all, and Gulen is an Islamic scholar. So in Turkey, the religious is some kind of compulsory in primary 4 to 8. 4 to 8. And we are just teaching just a subject and two periods in a week. Do they learn about other religions? No, we have just Muslim here in, in, in Turkey, like 99% of them. But if they come here, there will not be a problem. So they do teach Islam, but this being Gulen and Turkey, it's not just the facts, it's religious values. And this seems to be something parents want to emphasise. Two of my children are attending this school. I mean, it's far beyond our expectations. Our children spend the whole day here. I can say that this is a school that has deference to the customs and traditions, besides attaching great importance to the quality of education. Apart from lessons, is we try to also teach them our values. For example, they know more about their parents, uh, for example, how to behave towards their teachers, how to behave towards their parents, how to be a good student, how to be a good child at home, how to be a good person. Now the Gulen schools in particular have won over Westerners because they're amazing new builds with cutting-edge facilities and the best teachers. And they're coming to a country near you. There are more than 600 Gulen schools in 100 countries, sometimes but not always in areas stricken by poverty or conflict such as Bosnia, Afghanistan and Pakistan. I asked Erzjan Kellis from the Dialogue Society about these schools, particularly about how they were funded. The money and the funding is often raised from the, from the local businessmen, or it's often that they go to the, the state and they, they speak with them and the state sees what the kind of work that they're doing and knows what they're about and, and, and gives them the building in which to, 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 to open these schools. The schools operate as a, as a community cultural centre as well, so although they provide lessons during the day, they have after-school clubs, they have weekend schools, they have you know, parental uh, enhancement lessons and things of, of all sorts, so they're really very active. Um, in terms of the, their influence in the Muslim world, I mean, I think there's a huge symbolic value. I mean, of course, there's a lot that happens in direct interaction, but having a teacher who prays, but nonetheless wears a tie, may come as something which is quite normal for us. But go to Pakistan, and somebody having a tie and praying in the mosque is not. You get kicked out. They don't teach Islam in these classrooms. 
they teach those values that are at the heart of all religions and faiths and, and the universal values that we all aspire to through example. So you have these teachers who are very committed, very motivated, who are well educated, but who can also read the Quran and pray five times a day. I cannot tell you how influential that is. Isn't this just a slow generational coup? Um, no, no, I, I don't think it is. Because what you're doing is you're taking people from the age of four, putting them through school, and gradually sort of changing their mind, well, changing their mindset, but also changing their family's mindset. I mean, technically, they could be in a Gulen environment from the age of four till 21, couldn't they? No. What, what we're doing is we're bringing people together. If that is a coup and there's something wrong with that, then I guess we're guilty, but that's what we're doing. We're teaching people, or we're trying to teach people, and trying to teach ourselves in the process as to how to come together, finding common ground. You know, our motivation for dialogue, and my motivation for dialogue in particular, is because of my faith. I don't engage in dialogue despite Islam. I engage in dialogue because of Islam. The Quran says, uh, say to the people of the book, uh, their God and our God is one. Come to a common term between us and you, that you and we believe in none other than one God. Uh, that we created you in different tribes and different nations, not that you may despise one another, but that you may know one another. Every activity that we do, we're, all, we're registered charities, we're all legal, and you see that, you know, if you look at the, the activities, you'll see that the very nature of those are to bring people together it's not about being a Gulenist. There's no such thing as being a Gulenist. It's not about subscribing to one man and not seeing anything else and boxing yourself in. It's the exact opposite. Gulen says read. Read any, as much book as you can. Find them. Read them. Okay, so I gave him a hard time. I couldn't quite believe that Turkish philanthropists would invest so heavily in public services and expect nothing in return. It's a bit mean to criticise someone who's inspired thousands to provide first-rate education and healthcare. But even though Özcan said Gulenistas weren't on a mission to change the world, there are a few voices that say differently. Murat Belj, a Turkish intellectual who has experience with the movement, said Gulen sincerely believes that he's been chosen by God and described Gulen's followers as Muslim Jesuits who are preparing elites to run the country. Hakan Yavuz, a Turkish professor and Gulen veteran, goes one step further. The purpose here is very much power, he says. The model of power is the Ottoman Empire and the idea that Turks should shape the Muslim world. Because the trip was organised by Gulenistas, it was hard to find someone to criticise the movement. However, Mustafa Akil, a Turkish commentator who describes himself as a supporter but not a die-hard fan, has some interesting insights. How influential would you say the Gulen movement is within Turkey? It is undoubtedly the most important Islamic community in Turkey, the strongest Islamic community in terms of its numbers. There are millions of followers of Quran, and they're also the best institutionalized one. They have a media empire, they have hundreds of schools around the world and in Turkey. So they are very influential. And if you want to speak about Islam in Turkey, Quran would be the number one agenda. How are they perceived by secularists? They're different. I mean, there are secular liberals in Turkey and secular illiberals. The secular liberals would think positively about them because Gulen preaches a message in which democracy is appreciated. He's in favor of pluralism. He's in favor of a secular state as far as it grants religious freedom. So there are secular uh, liberals who appreciate these ideas and think that he's a positive force for Turkish society. Uh, there are other secularists who think any religion on the public square is a threat, a danger, and they are quite alarmed by Gulen and the power of his movement. Now, you just used the words threat and danger. A threat to what and a danger to what? 
a threat to secularism as they understand it. Because in Turkey, secularism has a very unique meaning. It's not like the U.S. secularism, for example, where you have a complete separation of church and state and you have a freedom for religion. In Turkey, secularism is understood uh, in, a, in a way in which religion is totally excluded from public life. And any religious symbol, any religious presence or idea should be wiped off from society. That's how, unfortunately, the Turkish uh, system understands secularism. It comes from an early Enlightenment fundamentalistic idea. Uh, and that's always at odds with uh, the religious movements in society, although the religious movements might be just demanding to preach their belief. I've been talking to quite a few people who work within Gulen-inspired institutions like schools and universities. And when they talk about the movement's philosophy, they never really talk about Islam. It's always very vague and it seems insubstantial. Why is that? I think that's a habit they acquired because of this interesting context in Turkey. In Turkey, you are not supposed to speak about Islam. And if, even if you're an Islamic movement, you have to be euphemistic about it. Because the secular state system thinks that any movement inspired by religion is dangerous. And if you put, it, put yourself that way, you might have problems. You might have legal problems. You might be crushed down in some extraordinary periods like military coups and so on. So all the religious movements in Turkey have to use this guarded language. And I think that's a... That's a, that's a Defense habit. mechanism, maybe? a defense mechanism they acquired within Turkey. And they keep it internationally, although maybe it's not that necessary. Why are so many businessmen investing in the Gulen movement? It's an interesting question, and I think it reflects the, uh, this Islamic bourgeoisie or Islamic middle class, which is rising in the Turkish society. Recently, a, a European think tank spoke about Islamic Calvinism rising in Turkey. I and mean, he was referring to the thesis of Max Weber about rise of Protestantism and rise of capitalism in the Calvinist ethic. In Turkey, now we're seeing something like that. You have a very up-and-coming Islamic middle class and entrepreneurial class. There are many businessmen. These people are generally from the rural or countryside with conservative values, they're, but they're establishing successful businesses, and they're using some of their finances for charity purposes. And if they are in the Gulen movement, they can use their resources to finance the schools of the movement. Uh, and this is, I think, uh, a new phenomenon for the Islamic civilization, uh, because I mean, business has not been a capitalist, you know, entrepreneurship has not been a part of the traditional Islamic culture. But in Turkey, you have the rise of that, and I think Gulen is a good, perfect example of that interesting phenomenon. Isn't there a privatization of religion, though, because the schools are fee-paying, the universities will be very modern, they might charge higher en entry fees and tuition fees as well. Isn't it aimed at the middle classes? So aren't you just sort of perpetuating the idea that it's the middle classes who will benefit and the people who are less well-off won't have access to these same facilities? Well, they can have access. There are uh, scholarships, scholarships yeah. offered to kids with not, you know, coming from poor families. Actually, it, it is a movement which integrates different social classes in Turkey. There are many Kurdish students in Gulen schools, and they're not getting the Kurdish nationalist line, which you, they could get from another source. They're getting a more, you know, reconciliatory, less ethnic nationalist, you know, more like brotherhood of the people's uh, mindset from these schools. Uh, so I think that these schools also create opportunities for people from villages. They come to the city. The, the bourgeois schools are not you know, offering them or not, not looking them very friendly. So they go to a grand school in which they find a more 
homegrown atmosphere, a culture, some moral values, some traditional values, some religious values, some religious practice, but they're also getting good science and maths, and they can even end up being a PhD student in a US campus. Uh, so it creates this upward mobility chance for people from the traditional side of the society. Because in Turkey, generally, the, the upper class has been secular. And the religious people have been seen as generally the, not the upper class. But this is changing, and the Gülen movement reflects that change. What are your reservations about the Gülen movement? I think they should be more open about their beliefs and practices and their goals. And that lack of openness, again, is something which the environment in Turkey has created. But they can get over with that. And especially in the international scene, they can be more open. Uh, they will have a problem when uh, Gulen dies. I mean, uh, I mean, he's... Where do you go from there? I mean, is he going to have a successor or...? I don't think so. And I think after him, uh, he's, I think, in late 60s. I think it will be more decentralized after he goes because there is no visible successor to the movement and his charisma is, is just unmatched. What other reservations do you have? I think they can be more, more intellectually uh, coherent or more intellectually articulate about what they're doing. I mean, they're doing something great. I think there's something phenomenal. But they would be better off if they extend, it, extend this from a movement and turn into a teaching or a doctrine. Now, I feel uneasy about what the Gulenistas are doing in Turkey and around the world. Whatever they say, it's as much a social and political movement as it is a religious one. But of course, you can't talk about religion in Turkey, as Mustafa was saying. You have to couch it in abstract language, like values and morals. All the Gulenistas can do for now is nurture that professional elite and wait for the climate to change. I'm Riaz Akbat and this is a special Turkish edition of Islamophonic. So, I haven't done any shopping. This is really bad. Is the long overcoat thing particularly Turkish? Yeah, I mean, wear that? Yeah, really? they do. They oh, do. Okay, yeah. I'm not sure if I, I tell you what, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen that many well-dressed secular women. The best, the kind of the more stylish women have been women who cover, and that's just really interesting. Now, if it's hard for the Gulenistas to be explicit about religion, imagine how impossible it is being a fashion designer in Turkey. The headscarf has become the most potent symbol of the struggle between secularism and Islam. To cut a very long story short, Turkey's ruling AK party has attacked the constitutional court over ruling on headscarves. The court blocked moves that would have allowed headscarves to be worn at universities. Judges said these moves violated Turkey's secular principles. In return, the AK party says the current ban prevents women from accessing education and employment. The AK party still faces being shut down for undermining Turkey's secular constitution. But the strife doesn't end there, it's on the high street too. One of the country's most famous fashion houses, Tekbir, stands accused by secularists of Islamicizing Turkey by promoting modest fashion. On the other hand, conservatives are attacking Tekbir for encouraging women to dress attractively. The company is even being sued over its name. Tekbir is an Islamic concept. To find out why the headscarf issue just won't go away, as well as finding out what's hot in Istanbul this summer, I met up with Pina Varuchu, features editor of Today's Zaman, to ask her what options there were for women in Istanbul. 
There are shopping districts, in particularly in Istanbul, it's such a large metropolis where uh, quote-unquote conservative women can, can find clothing and one of them would have to be Fatih. So there's an, this entire shopping dr district where you can walk up and down the street and mm. find countless stores that carry conservative clothing that's chic and um, I guess trendy and the colors that are in in this season, like this summer, we're seeing a lot of like bright yellows and greens and citrusy colors. And there isn't a designer in particular that caters to women who wear the hijab or more conservative. Rabia Yalchin is a designer who actually is covered herself. She wears the headscarf, but she says that she doesn't make clothing, Islamic fashion clothing, because she says that Islam cannot be fashionable. No. Like people can adapt it to what they, whatever they want it to be, but I will just make clothes. Mm. Even though she wears the scarf, she refuses to but say that it, I'm is Islamic it just designer. More is it just more modern? for example. Yeah. So she won't have a plunging neckline mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. sleeveless top. Well, actually, she does is She creates a little bit of both. She has some evening wear, and mm -hmm. people are like, wow, a lady with a headscarf is creating this, like, these type of designs. And what she says is, hey, people are free to do whatever they want with the clothes I design. Mm -hmm. You know, women can wear them with parties that they have with one and, with each other if they don't feel comfortable, and women who don't care are free to wear them wherever they want. Do you find that women will just adapt? So, for example, they'll buy something from Zara and then they'll mm -hmm. buy something from Mango and they'll just put it together and it will just cover them up. Mm -hmm. Or do you think there's a demand for something that specifically ticks all the boxes? So it will have long sleeves, mm -hmm. you know, it will go to mid-thigh, for example, and the neck will be closed. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that sort of depends on the age range. Like, I find a lot of younger girls do dress the way you said from Zara and Mango in here and then put an outfit together, whereas older women, like, uh, stores such as Tekbir, who like specialize yeah. in Islamic clothing, like older women will, will shop from there. Mm. But younger girls try to dress where, uh, shop from where younger people shop from, but just adapt their clothes into what's acceptable. I mean, is there a, de a demand for more modest, more conservative clothing? I would have to say yes. I mean, right now the statistic is that 60% of Turkish women are covered in one way or another. Mm. And you were saying, you know, I see some wearing chador and some in much more fashionable, colorful clothing, but they are covered to some extent. Mm. So um, stores are having to cater to, to them. And I'm noticing that a lot of mainstream stores where, that previously sold just sporty items like... Um, just short jackets and cargo pants. Now they're coming up with a line of skirts and mm. whatnot. They, I have seen the transition that they're adopt, you know, adapting their clothing to a different demographic. So you talked about yellows and citrus greens. What are the other big trends in Istanbul? Uh, what seems to be co coming back is we just can't wave goodbye to linen at all. So like wide-laying pants, linen, and then the Turkish shalwar. I didn't get to do as much shopping as I wanted to, but I did notice tons of headscarf-wearing women, mostly young, in Istanbul. I thought there were more of them there than there are in London, and I think they were generally more stylish and better dressed than British hijabis. But I suppose that's what happens when you have high street chains dedicated to conservative fashion. The Gulen movement, which takes the religion out of Islam, and the headscarf row, which does the opposite, show why the West is so interested in Turkey. The tension spills over into government too, and it proves that there's a bigger battle being fought for the soul of the country. For a nation seen as a halfway house between Islam and secularism, it will be interesting to see who wins.